Have you ever wondered what is geopolitics? Everybody these days seems to be talking about one thing. In almost every news piece about international politics, you will find a particular word, geopolitics. But what is this concept and what makes it different from international relations or other social sciences? Stay with us, because today we will interview Dr. Bohumil Dobos, professor in geopolitical studies for Charles University in Prague. He will help us understand better what is this realm of politics and how it interprets the world around us. Welcome to a new episode of the Geopolitical People. Today with us, we'll have Bohumil Dogos, assistant professor from Charles University in the Department of uh, Political Studies in the Masters of Geopolitics and other other subjects that are taking place in other masters. Good friend of the show. Good friend of the show. <laughs> Expert <laughs> in the, the field. <laughs> Expert in the field. And uh, today we will be talking about what is geopolitics, what does it represent in the world today, and how can we perceive it in the current struggles that are coming out in the international world. Yeah, so first of all, my first question, basically, a lot of my friends, when I tell them that I'm doing a master's in geopolitics, they ask me, What is geopolitics? What makes it different from international relations, uh, political science, anything like that? So first question, as easily as you can explain it, what is geopolitics? Thank you guys for inviting me. Thank you for running the show. Really glad that uh, this is this is being up. And yeah, your question is pretty valid. As, uh, this is something we encounter quite a lot that people take geopolitics for anything that is happening in international relations. If you look at the media, if you look at the people who are not dealing with geopolitics, using the word geopolitics, it's usually a power competition, great power competition. But geopolitics, it's uh, like the definition would be probably the understanding of political events in space, in geographic space. But this doesn't really tell us much. If you tell people you study politics and geography, it's pretty much useless for them. And so it's pretty useful to divide the topics. And first of all, it's definitely the classical. Uh, we look at how geography of some region affects the political events, which is like the classical approach. To that, we must add that it's not only about cartography. It's also about the distribution of the population. It's about the distribution of resources, infrastructure, because that affects the role of geography quite a lot. But we can also look at other aspects of uh, how geography affects political events. And this is through our perceptions of geography, uh, our understanding what the not only geographical features mean for our communities, for the states, but also about uh, how we understand the population distribution, how we understand the role of resources, which can change quite a lot, which is also giving another angle to what we are studying. And what is making geopolitics different from political geography is that we look at it from a great power point of view. We usually look at it from the point of view of high politics, meaning uh, how the power is being distributed, how geography affects the power projection capabilities, etc. of different actors. It doesn't really have to be only great powers, it doesn't have to be only states to speak of. So as far as I understand, what implies is that we have several actors and those actors are in a power competition in all the time. And what we analyze is that power competition among them with 
all everything that gives them that power. Is their territory, is their population, is their their resources, is even the diplomatic power that they might have. The connectivity, everything mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. But we are not looking at it from, for example, legal point of view. We are not looking at it from the uh, international organization point of view. Like stuff like that. we can use it as limits that are followed by some actors and not followed by others. But we look at it from like the hard power perspective, from the material perspective. Mm -hmm. And the special focus is given on the geographical limits. That doesn't mean only cartography, that means demography, resources, etc. Could you put us one example right now uh, with, the, with the war in Ukraine? Could you give us an example of how would your politics analyze the, the invasion? Definitely, there are different ways how we can look at it. And one that is very important for this is the role of perception of geography. As if we look at uh, the western part of Russia and uh, then Western Europe, it's a flatland basically. And we can see a different readings of this flatland by the different actors. So for Russia, it's perception of threat. You can be attacked from there, meaning that you want to secure a bridgehead ahead which now affects Ukraine quite a lot because Ukraine is perceived as a threat because it's a flatline through which Moscow can be invaded. However, if you look at it from the other side, the same geography for Europeans mean a great opportunity. You have an opportunity to connect this flat, large flatline, lots of population, and make economic benefits, make security benefits without actually threatening anyone. It's not the goal. It's not even a possibility for the EU to threaten Russia at this point. However, the different readings of the space and the different ways how to integrate the space. From the Russian point of view, it's only about military. From the European point of view, it's primarily about economy, are mutually exclusive, and we can see this uh, running up in Ukraine. This would be one way how to read it. Then we can look at it from a more military perspective, how the, the war goes on, but I'm not an expert in military, so I will not go into that. And we can use several other, other readings. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I, I think that's a great uh, indication of the different geopolitical domains that we have within the study of geopolitics. Um, so do you want to briefly run through what the different domains are, how they affect the space differently and their implications? Yeah, so far we have talked only about land domain, which is the primary uh, focus on the FD analysis, because logically people live on land, so this is the primary type of, uh, type of space we will be thinking about with the distribution among basically mainly states or sometimes non-state actors when we go to different parts of the world in Europe or or some parts of Asia. Uh, so this is this is the, the space that is affected by cartography, by the infrastructure as we know it, etc. However, currently we can identify three to four other spaces that, however, have a different uh, logic behind them. The first that what you sliced is C, obviously, and we don't control C. We control some choke points, we control some parts of the lines of the communication. And the understanding of uh, the power distribution throughout the C is completely different. It's about movement, it's about efficiency, it's not about territorial control, meaning that the geographic aspects we'll be looking at are completely different than on land. You don't wants to and you cannot really control huge parts of the sea you can control only several choke points several key positions and you usually control them from the land once again 
Third, we can uh, understand airspace as a different types of space, which uh, also has its uh, different logic, which shrinkens the, the, the globe, etc. Fourth, what we have utilized is outer space. We usually, uh, when we look at the pictures of outer space, it's a black vastness, right? But uh, what is very interesting is that outer space has its own cartography, which is nonetheless not rooted in uh, the aspects of the land. It's rooted in uh, gravity. So the movement inside outer space is not random. It's being defined by gravity. And when we understand the role of gravity, the different interactions among the bodies, uh, the role that we want our infrastructure to play as uh, some of the infrastructure needs to be played on low dirt orbits, some it's uh, placed higher up just for the efficiency, like the navigation services, etc. Uh, then we can get a nice uh, map of our space, which can be used in a similar way to land. And then, of course, we have cyberspace, which should have been this like non-geographic space that would universalize everything. But what we can see are two key points that are affecting geopolitics in, in cyberspace. First are the cables. You need a physical infrastructure to run internet, meaning that internet has its geographic logic. And second is the so-called sovereign internet that is being run up in places like Russia, like China, but also elsewhere, which also territorializes the internal working of internet. So we have these basically five domains which have a different logic behind them, but they all can be, to a certain degree, analyzed through the geopolitical lenses. May I ask you in that sense, because the three main domains that you were mentioning before, uh, well, first land, sea, uh, air, and then we go to space and uh, cybersecurity. Uh, those two last domains, I assume that they've been uh, developed and they've been studied recently, maybe um, astropolitics before. Uh, but cyber, uh, but cyber politics definitely. Uh, recently, how is the academia touching these issues, uh, and how is the academia actually relating with uh, with the institutions and the people that then, in the end, have to take the decisions in this matter? So for cyber, this is not really a huge issue as far as I know. I'm not expert in cyber, but as far as I know, the geopolitical understanding of cyberspace is not really that prominent given the fact that it's not really that strongly present in there. If you look at the different different domains, the role of uh, geopolitical analysis type play would be the weakest by far, mm -hmm. logic. For outer space, this is different. And we can see development of the academic writings on geopolitics and outer space, or so-called astropolitics, at least since the 1990s. And early on, the academic writings were underdeveloped and this is logical there was just the first first studies but if you look at the development of the of the field uh, let's say in the 2010s 2020s it's quite a huge amount of works we can work with and these the people who are dealing with are being listened to more and more in the practical life which we can see happening already, for example, in the European Union, which is by far the softest of the great powers. Mm -hmm. But even the EU has realized that outer space has its clear geopolitical reasoning behind it and has, for example, developed the EUSPA, the EU Space Policy uh, Association, which is dealing with the hard stuff. 
there are several institutions in Brussels that are in contact with the European Commission and are using the also the writings on astropolitics mm -hmm. to make some suggestions regarding the policies. So this is something that uh, is being worked at. It's been pretty strongly present in the US policy decision-making since uh, at least 9-11, mm -hmm. when everything was securitized, including our space. But it's also being present in the EU right now. So hopefully this will add another perspective to the decision-making. Of course, you cannot make the decision-making solely based on geopolitical analysis, but it gives you an important, important perspective, which is also relevant in our space nowadays and will become more relevant given the fact that the great power competition we can see appearing or already happening in but strengthening on, on, on Earth between the bloc represented by China and Russia and basically what we can call the West is now, now again reappearing in our space. In that sense, um, because uh, what you were mentioning before with outer space, uh, it's not related to a geographical position, it's related to gravity and how does gravity interact with the Earth and how, how do um, the, the instruments that we launch into the space uh, interact with that gravity. And uh, there is one line, basically, uh, there's one point around the, the, there's around the Earth there is a perfect spot to put uh, satellites, as you were mentioning before. If I'm not wrong, that spot is closer to the equator. And there's these countries, these countries that are in this great power competition in the land domain and in the sea domain and in the air domain. They don't have that proximity, that much proximity with the, with the equator. How do you see that can develop? Having, as we were mentioning, this great power competition looking for the best spot to launch their satellites or their orbital uh, or their orbital instruments? Uh, basically speaking, there is no one perfect spot. It always depends on what you want your stuff to do. Uh, if we look at the orbital space, you we need to look at the different orbits because you cannot really maintain a, uh, any, any equipment on a single spot, as you mentioned. This would be different, for example, with the lunar landing that is upcoming, when we will be dealing with a traditional cartography of the, of the moon. But we can put it aside right now. For the great power competition, it always depends on uh, your position on the ground, and it also always depends on what you need to do. An example of that, uh, if you look at the global navigational systems, they are being developed right now by the US, by Russia, by uh, the EU, and by China. And all of them are de developed slightly differently. They are all on the medium Earth orbits, but on a slightly different height, so they don't interfere with each other. But if you look at the distribution of satellites, for example, Russia will have satellites that are more, more densely present over the Northern Pole, logically, because this is the area of interest for Russia. So if the ships are sailing the Arctic, they will be more likely to use GLONASS. However, if you are further to the south, GPS and especially Galileo are more precise. So it also depends on the fact what the country needs uh, from the satellites. You have mentioned the geosynchronous orbit, which is located directly above the equator in one specific height. And this, this uh, orbit is very important for the telecommunications because you mm -hmm. then remain over one single region. So it's full-packed because it's one single orbit. You cannot really change the height. 
On the lowered orbits, when you have, for example, photoreconnaissance satellite, if your orbital slot is full, you can either place the satellite elsewhere or you can put it to a slightly different height. There is a quite enough space uh, so far. However, on geosynchronous orbit, you cannot do so. But this orbit is only important for telecommunication and for early warning systems right now. But it's being full. So it depends on what you need your satellites to do. And the great power competition might show up in effect that uh, once the instruments will not cooperate, you will need more instruments in our space, or you can tamper with the other ones. You can tamper with the signals and stuff like that. So, yeah, the the role of the orbital mechanics will take place. The role of the fact that you have only a limited amount of the slots will take place, but there is no one single most important orbit that we could identify. Right, I think that that's a great introduction to like what astropolitics is and how space uh, is a very important domain. Leaving behind the domains for a minute now, I would like to go through back to sort of the idea of a state. So obviously with the traditional definition of a state, it needs to have a defined territory. And another that's another hugely determinant factor, I think, in geopolitics is your territory that you have to control. And do you want to run us through some of the different ways that that can affect uh, the geopolitics of a region, their territory, including things such as non-state actors and and ungoverned spaces and that sort of thing. Yeah. Pro- problem with mm. the state is that if you look at it from the, let's say, IR point of view, it's one unit, idealized unit, and then we look at the interaction. Mm-hmm. However, if you look at it from the point of view of geopolitics, we want to know how it runs in reality, how it's controlling its territory. And of course, the modern Westphalian state, as you correctly mentioned, is primarily defined by its territory. It has a stable, more or less stable border. And this institution of state should be the dominant institution throughout all of its territory, which we know is not the case everywhere. So we, when we talk about state, we cannot talk about a single type of actor. And in many parts of the world, uh, institution of state is capable of controlling effectively only the area around large cities or its capital, or in case of Somalia, not even that. And at that point, it is useless to talk about the state as a unit as we see it as a po- in the political map, but as one of many actors that are competing over power projection on a certain territory. And the institution of state at that point would be to one point limited by its borders, because the non-state actors are usually not limited by the borders. They are not recognized. They can do whatever they want, basically, as far as uh, the international law is concerned. And for uh, the average person, a non-state actor is generally can talk about it's, rebel groups, yeah. terrorist groups, things like that. Yeah, it's basically, uh, at, it, at this context, it's any, any group that uh, maintains some presence on mm-hmm. certain land. And sometimes they can be more efficient in governance than the state is. Yeah. Case of Somalia or Taliban in Afghanistan, right? Yeah. And the state is limited by the borders, generally. Uh, the troops cannot go over them, but the state is leg- seen as a legitimate actor by the international community, so it will get external help. And this interaction is very, very interesting in places uh, like the Sahel, for example. If you look at the geography of Sahel, the states are basically controlling the population centers, if that. And uh, 
countries like Mali, like Niger, like Chad, like Mauritania are having huge spaces that are very hard to govern, to speak of. You can govern only through population. You have no population in there. So understanding, for example, Mauritania is a great example. Understanding Mauritania as a state inside of its borders is very reductionist. What Mauritania does is that it pretty well controls the coast. It pretty well controls parts of the borders with Senegal, where the population is located. And it controls the iron mines next to Western Sahara with the land. The rest of the country is being basically left alone. It's uh, Part of it is even a no-go zone, simply to avoid uh, spillover effects from Mali. And uh, the power projection capability of Mauritian states in there is very weak. So this can create some issues, as we have seen in Mali, when Malian state is or was rather efficient in controlling the south, which is densely populated, but left the north alone. And then you can have the impact of uh, two area groups, of jihadist groups that appeared as a consequence of the first war in Lib- uh, civil war in Algeria, then the civil war in, in Libya, and went further, further south. And this is a completely different dynamic than we will see in the states that are actually capable of projecting power mm-hmm. throughout their territory. This is something that is completely irrelevant, for example, for Eastern Europe where we can see a traditional power competition nowadays war of Russia against Ukraine with a traditional armies with the fight over territory between states. However, this is not the way how the state operate everywhere in the world and it must be understood in this way, meaning that the geopolitics will not treat a state as a single uh, universalized ideal type unit, but will look at different states uh, through the way how they are actually being run and how what territories and what populations they are actually capable of controlling. That is one of the things, because uh, you were mentioning that your politics doesn't see the state as the only unitary way of government. And uh, there are several definitions, there are several interpretations of, of what states can be, uh, failed states or, fail, or failing. Uh, could you give us, de facto, uh, could you give us a little bit of a glimpse in that sense, or if you could give us some examples of so that the, we can have the different here, we can picture the difference. So basically, if you look on the definitions of state, what is important right now, if you look at the factual point of view, is that a state is a unit that is recognized as a state. This is something that goes to the core of how the current world system is operated. So Looking at it right that, we can see a different types of states that are run differently. If you look at countries like Russia, like China, these are the traditional Westphalian actors. The authority of the central government is the primary one. The importance of sovereignty is being highlighted, etc. Then we can identify the so-called postmodern states. These states are still affected, but they have decided that it's much more efficient to co- connect with the rest of the rest of the world, which is something that uh, came up basically as a consequence of the Second World War in Europe. European countries found out after the two, three decades of destruction that this is not really an efficient way how to conduct politics. And what is much better is to interconnect with each other. But this means that they are losing some of the aspects of the traditional Westphalian sovereignty. However, this is a willing approach And the space that is being interconnected is actually growing because this is appealing for the populations. 
the EU itself is growing into the Balkans, into Eastern Europe, into the former communist Europe. It is being interconnected with Northern America. It is being furthermore interconnected with parts of East Asia, like Japan, like South Korea, like Taiwan. And then we have these weak, fragile states that are defined by what was mentioned previously. We have parts of the states that are being controlled by a government, but huge parts of the state that are either completely away from the control of the state or are controlled by the so-called neo-patrimonial networks, meaning that the person in power is having a personal deal with some local warlord, with some local elder, and pays him, is usually him, for loyalty. But this is not like an institutional setting. And then you have mentioned the idea of the de facto states or quasi-states. There is a huge and useless terminological debate about it. And these are entities that possess a majority of the components we usually connect to the institution of state, meaning they are controlling to some degree majority of the territory they claim to. They have some governance, they have some population, etc., but are not being recognized, meaning they are not members of the uh, United Nations. And examples of that would be would be Kosovo, mm-hmm. which is a great example of basically a country that isn't recognized. It already had in the past over 100 recognitions. Now it's slightly below. We can uh, uh, we can look at Palestine, which is basically a similar 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 example. But the role of the of the of Israel is much stronger than the role of Serbia in Kosovo. Then we can have some uh, de facto states that are not having this level of recognition. Great example is Somaliland, which is having zero recognition, despite the fact that it operates like an basically efficient state given the context of Horn of Africa. Uh, we can see de facto states that are basically pretty much tied to some external actor, to some state that is supporting them, like the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, or the post-Soviet uh, unrecognized states like Abkhazia, so to say, Chad. No, Luhansk and Donetsk, <laughs> the yeah. new, new one. <laughs> yeah. And, um, well, thank you very much. I think we we did have an overview of what geopolitics is and what it means. Mm. One of the purposes of this podcast and these interviews is also for, for prospective students or people that are that are finishing their studies to, to know how to get into this world, to know how to to get inspiration in, in following their, their career. So we would like to ask you, how did you, how did you start? How did you end up here? How did you start? Uh, what did you study? Uh, what was your motivation? Did you do masters? Did you PhD? Did you work? What was more or less your career in that sense? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I ended up, I ended up being here basically by pure luck. Uh, <laughs> after, after my high school, I wanted to go to university, obviously didn't want to go to work. And I didn't know what to study at all. Like, it's completely <laughs> clueless. So I looked at the different universities and wanted to do something I enjoy. And I always enjoy politics. And I was a huge fan of geography since I was a kid. And I found like the political science international relations at the Faculty of Social Sciences. And it had a lot of politics and you know, stuff I enjoyed. So I applied. I got in, studied my bachelor's. And throughout the bachelor's, we got uh, some subjects on political geography. First, with sadly recently deceased Borio Inizdo, who was teaching a subject on political geography itself. And then with Mikhail Romansov, also from our program. And it was super fun. I super enjoyed it. So when I was deciding when to go for master's, there was this new program of geopolitical studies applied. 
plus I was doing political science as well. And I super enjoyed geopolitical studies. It was great fun. And that said, uh, on political science, I didn't really have to care about it. So for my master thesis, I picked the space topic because, you know, a Star Wars fan. So I wanted to do something fun. If I failed, it doesn't really matter. So I prepared my master's thesis on space and it became a huge, huge, uh, huge uh, blast as well. So I got basically my two specializations, the new middle ages uh, on GPS and uh, outer space on or astropolitics on political science. And then I applied for the PhD. And I continued doing uh, New Middle Ages as my thesis and uh, astropolitics as a side gig. And I got, for, I got involved more with the GPS through teaching through my uh, supervisor, Martin Regal, who is also at the program nowadays. And next to that, uh, I was offered a job at the Ministry of Defense, mm-hmm. as there are a lot of people from our institute working there. For logical reasons, we are yeah. dealing with the security. We are from Prague. Uh, it is a prestigious school. There's a lot of great people coming from the institute. Mm-hmm. So since then, for like five years, I was both uh, first finishing my PhD and then uh, working as an assistant professor at the institute and working at the Ministry of Defense which is a great experience to have because you can get in touch with the real world, with the yeah, events from the other side. Academia. <laughs> not just in academia. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it was simply too much to have two jobs at once. Yeah. So last year, last year, uh, I decided to quit the Ministry of Defense and now I'm fully focused on the, on the, on the academic side of my work. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, from us. Yeah, I think that's that's it from us. And thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I'm sure we'll have you on again. The rest of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we'll have you on again on a specialized topics when we come come to your specializations. And perfect. Look forward to it. Looking forward to it. Cheers. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And this was all for today. Uh, Stay tuned for next geopolitical people interviews. Yeah. See you soon. Nice. Thanks for tuning in to Your Political Pico. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to seeing you next time. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for more behind-the-scenes content. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you and see you next week.